0: Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to a history of Italy. Episode 150: The Savoy in Decline and the Holy Shroud of Turin. 1451 to 1490
1: nelle salici ritrovo speranza di un amore,
0: Well, here we are, episode 150. If you add in the special episodes, interviews, and Fascism 100, and Anti-Mafia Martyrs, we go well beyond 200, but the main official podcast is at 150. I would say it seemed like only yesterday that I was surprised at getting to episode 10, but it doesn't seem like yesterday at all. Indeed, it was about five years ago and several centuries of history ago. Anyway, here we are, and the fact that we are here is solely due to you, my wonderful, wonderful listeners, to those who have supported on Patreon, to those who have supported on PayPal, to those who have written reviews, and to all of you who simply download or stream and listen to the show. Grazie, grazie. Thank you very, very much. As the episodes pile up, I obviously want to leave all of them, from 1 to 150 and beyond, available. Indeed, soon I will be re-recording episode 1, because I recently listened to it and found it rather cringeful. However, we are running out of space on our hosting platform, and will soon have to upgrade, increasing the cost a bit. So now, as Christmas 2022 dawns, it's a really good time to give yourself the wonderful present of becoming a Patreon supporter, so you can have access to ad-free episodes and extra content, and of course, help support the show. Thank you very, very much if you decide to do so. The last time we visited with the Savoy in Piedmont, we left off with the death of the colourful Amadeo VIII, who had started out as Duke of Savoy, then retired, sort of, to a monastery continuing to party, and then actually became an anti-pope before bowing out gracefully with no real negative consequences. While he was messing about with the whole religious career, he had officially left the duchy in the hands of his son, Ludovico or Louis, but he had continued to be involved in the running of things almost until his death in 1451. We saw how over the years the Savoy had built up an important power base, patiently, bit by bit, without making too much noise, one or two castles at a time, to create a duchy that stretched from the region of Savoy in modern-day France down through the Turin area in Italy and all the way to the coast when they acquired Nice to become an influential element in the politics of both France and Italy. They had then given form and organisation to this structure, particularly with the general statutes of 1430. What is today the region of Piedmont in Italy was also shared by France to the west, Milan to the east, and in the middle the marches of Saluzzo and Monferrato. The Savoy had come, however, to be the dominant force in the area. One of the strengths of the Savoy had been that their lands were a passage through the Alps between France and the Italian peninsula. If they were your ally, you had a smooth crossing. If not, things became very difficult. However now, as the 15th century headed to its latter half, things were changing. The previous situation had been valid in medieval times, but now, with modern armies and the use of artillery, the Savoy did not have so much of a territorial advantage. Also, the type of lands they had, very mountainous, didn't allow for very good farmland, and, as the 15th and then the 16th centuries progressed, the dynasty saw a decline that would leave them with an ever-thinner strip of land from France down to the coast. They would come to realise the advantage of concentrating their efforts more on the Piedmont side of their duchy than Savoy, since Piedmont had better farming lands and less powerful neighbours, as France consolidated. Proof of this would eventually be the de facto transfer of the capital of the duchy from Chambéry to Turin, where a university was also founded in the early 1400s, thanks also to the fact that Turin was the only bishopric in the nearby area. The marches of Saluzzo and Monferrato would also try to create their own capitals, respectively in Saluzzo and Casale, but neither would really rival Turin. A period of economic and structural weakness could be helped if it coincided with strong rulers, but that was not the case. Indeed, after Amedeo VIII, the Savoy saw a line of weak and adequate leaders, until Emanuele Filiberto I, known as Ironhead came along in 1553, almost 100 years later, to start a restoration. As we mentioned, the first duke of this period of decline was the son of Amadeo VIII, Ludovico. He had no great military campaign or battle to tell of, neither victory nor defeat, nor any great reforms or diplomatic issues of note. He is mostly remembered for two things. The first is having a wife that his courtiers and subjects didn't like. He married Anne of Lusignano, daughter of the King of Cyprus, which brought official regal dignity to the Savoy, but nothing on a practical level, for soon Cyprus would be controlled by the Republic of Venice. She brought a series of Cypriot household members with her, and their extravagant Eastern ways, and the favors she doled out to her favorites caused a bit of scandal. The other thing that Ludovico is known for is making an acquisition that could be seen as the start of one of the greatest hoaxes in history that lasts to this day over 550 years later. That of the Holy Shroud of Jesus Christ, known as the Holy Shroud of Turin, La Sacra Sindone in Italian. Now, I'm no shroud expert, I'm not really much of an expert of anything, but anyway, the debate both in the religious and scientific world is still ongoing and complex, and I no way feel I can do it justice in just a few minutes, but we can get a general overview. So the Holy Shroud of Turin was supposedly the burial cloth used to cover up the body of Jesus after he was deposed from the cross and then would have been cast off after his resurrection. Now, I know that your mental process, dear listener, is more likely faster than mine, so please be patient with me as I share some things that I've only recently figured out. So, the body would have been placed on a long, thin strip of cloth, around 13 feet by 3 feet, or 4.4 by 1.1 meters. The body was placed towards one end, with the other side folded over, which is how a laid-out shroud would have any possible imprint left by a body, with the back part facing upright, and the front upside down. Indeed, the Shroud of Turin, as well as burn marks from fires, also shows what look like bloodstains, and most curious of all, the image of the body and face of a bearded man who has undergone torture and death, most likely by crucifixion. A very nasty way to die, and in no way a doddle as the old man in Life of Brian claims. The image is very faint, but acts as a photonegative. Indeed, if you reverse the image, it becomes very clear. The shroud was reported to have been in Constantinople until 1204 when it disappeared during the notorious Fourth Crusade in which the Crusaders turned against Constantinople. It resurfaced again in France in the 1350s in the possession of a knight, Geoffrey de Charny, who then died at the famous Battle of Poitiers in 1456. The shroud was a pretty good cash cow for the de Carni family for a few decades, thanks to the income from visiting pilgrims, but it was then revealed to be a painted fake in 1390 with the confession of the artist. The painting part, not the shroud itself. It stayed in the family for a few more decades until 1453. Margaret of Carni, down on her luck, deeded it to our boy Ludovico of Savoy. That was probably what actually happened. Legend would have it instead that the Shroud was being moved, and that once it arrived in Chambéry, the capital of the Savoy region at the time, the oxen pulling the cart it was on mysteriously stopped and would not budge. Meaning that for some reason the destiny of the Shroud was to be there. I'm not sure why Chambéry of all places, but I'm also not complaining, because I've been there on holiday and it's a lovely alpine village. The Savoy stashed it away, and it was not seen for some time. But when it reappeared, it looked very different. Indeed, it now had the very characteristic marking that you could see today. Well, you can't see it today because it's locked up in the cathedral in Turin, inside of a box, inside of another box, inside a case with bulletproof glass, and it comes out on display only very rarely, but you can see images of it. It was damaged in a fire, with molten metal falling on it in 1532, after which some nuns tried to patch it up. In 1578, it was moved to its definitive, at least for now, location in Turin. It stayed in the possession of the Savoy until it was donated to the Catholic Church by the last King of Italy, Umberto II, just before his death in 1983. Although the Shroud is perhaps the most closely studied artefact in human history, with tens of thousands of hours of research poured into it, direct access has not often been allowed. There was the STURP in 1978, the Shroud of Turin research project, and then connected to it, but excluding the study team, the carbon dating of 1988 by three different laboratories that dated the cloth between 1260 and 1390. This study has been contested based on the fact that the section chosen, the upper left-hand corner, was supposedly not representative of the whole shroud, and could have come from a later patch-up operation. Sounds a bit like wishful thinking to me, but I am neither a scientist nor a weaver. Either the image on the shroud was made by the body of a man who had been whipped, crucified and had wounds to the head possibly from something like a crown of thorns whether Jesus himself or some guy from the Middle Ages or someone created the image in some other way without using paint for there are no traces of pigment on the shroud. At the same time, the red splotches seem indeed to be blood or at least of organic origin. Further proof brought by the image creator theory supporters mentioned the fact that the image has different heights from the front and the back image, and we as humans usually don't have different heights from back to front. A very interesting experiment was carried out by a professor Nicholas Allen. He attempted to create an image similar to that on the shroud using technology that would have been available in the Middle Ages the precursor to the photography camera, the Camera Obscura. Using this setup, Alan managed to photograph a model of a body onto a sheet of cloth soaked in silver nitrate, and managed to obtain the image. All one had to do afterwards was add some human blood. So, who could have pulled off this incredible and unlikely hoax? Just think of the almost impossible combinations the person would have to have had. An artist, a scientist, an inventor with a knowledge of chemistry and the properties of light with an interest in lenses and all of this with access to a good amount of human blood perhaps from his or her studies in anatomy. And that person would have to have been alive between the acquisition of the Shroud in 1453 and its reappearance in the early parts of the next century. No one like that could exist, surely. And yet, we have a certain Leonardo da Vinci, who quite interestingly fits the description. That is a theory I really like. In any case, As I mentioned, I am not a Shroud expert and whether it is the burial shroud of the actual historical Jesus, whatever you may believe of his divine nature, or an elaborate hoax by one of history's greatest minds, it remains a pretty cool object. The official position of the Catholic Church is neither to accept nor reject the veracity of the Holy Shroud. As we said, It was purchased by Ludovico of Savoy, who ruled until his death in 1465. His successor was yet another Amadeo, the ninth this time. He suffered from frequent epilepsy attacks, and in his stead his wife, Yolanda of Valois, would rule. Seven years later, in 1472, when her husband died, she would become a full-time regent for her son, Filiberto. The succession of Filiberto was contested by another claimant, the uncle, Filippo Lackland, because he had no land and he wanted some. He was particularly close to Louis XI of France and was supported by the Savoy part of the duchy, but opposed by the Piedmont side, who feared that all of the duchy would eventually be absorbed by the increasing power of the French throne. Yolanda, the regent for Filiberto, ended up siding with Charles the Bold, Duke of Normandy, in his rebellion against Louis XI, and she also managed to see off the threat of Filippo Lackland, the claimant. This was somewhat of a pyrrhic victory, as it only revealed the weakness of the duchy, encouraging areas such as Vaud and Valais to break off. With the victory of King Louis over Duke Charles, the line of the Dukes of Normandy died out, allowing the king to seize more lands, including Burgundy itself. Savoy now had a real superpower sitting on their doorstep and started to fall more and more under its influence. Filiberto, who would come to be known as Filiberto the Hunter because he spent most of his time hunting and partying, simply had to accept this new situation. The same thing could be said for his successor, his brother Charles I, who took the throne at the age of 14. He was a bit more interested in running the state, and determined to try and get some sort of hold over his duchy, and even managed to add the March of Saluzzo for a short time. He was married to Bianca of Monferrato, the other regent of Piedmont. He died in suspicious circumstances in 1490, leaving his wife as regent for their young son, Charles II, until his death in 1496. But there are other things we'll have to talk about between 1490 and 1496, because the French are coming. In any case, this takes our Savoy and the Piedmont area out of the Middle Ages. grazie Mille. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters. Starting from the first half of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level. Alison H, Amanda D, Anthony G, Brian J, C-Lane, Cindy M, David P, Dean V, Dominique T, Emily B, Federica R, Francisco A, Gabriel S, George V, Greg, Gunnar, Ignazio, Il Valentino, Jacob L, Jane J, Jeff M, Jeff S., Jeffrey W., Jesse and Shari, John W., and Juan Diego. Thanks, of course, to the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Righieri-level, Paolo, Lisa K., Andrew M., Peter W., David L., Rinat, David C., Oak, J.W., Sen, David A., and Karen D. If you feel so inclined, you can get in touch, hello, at a or or you can look us up on social media. We are on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and now on Mastodon, but we're still trying to figure that one out. Thanks again very much for listening, and until next time, Arrivederci. Sentire media.
1: and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.